The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. If you would find your way to Matthew chapter 26 this morning, this morning we've dedicated our time and all of our energy toward the Lord's table this morning. And whenever, whenever we gather on this day, the cross is always central, especially central, because the cross is the centerpiece of history and determinant of our eternity. And you might ask the question this morning, how is it that the death of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago have any impact on the centerpiece of history and our eternity? So before we get to our text this morning, in order to answer that question, I think it's wise for us to view the cross in the context of what we know about God this morning and what we know to be true of ourselves. Kim and I were watching a show a week or a half ago, maybe two weeks. I don't know why I said a half. It really doesn't matter. We were watching a show, and there was a rookie police officer being trained by his female counterpart. And as they were training, the, the trainer said to this rookie, do you know what your problem is? He said, what? He said, your problem is that you think everyone is inherently good. That's your problem. And I think in our world today, we naturally believe that everyone, everybody, every human being is inherently good. And so if we think that, then when it comes to the cross, if we're inherently good, then all we need is a few minor adjustments, right, to add a little bit to our life, and voila, salvation can be, not, can be ours. But there's a problem with that, because as this officer told the rookie, your problem is you think everyone's right, her answer to that was this, they're not okay. Mankind is not inherently good. And she did not use the word depraved, but that's exactly what she meant, theologically saying that mankind at its bottom nature is depraved. We're not naturally good. Therefore, it's not just adding a little bit here or there and voila, salvation. Something radical must happen. You're not okay. I'm not okay. We're not okay. Something radical must happen. And once we see God for who he truly is, and we see ourselves for who we truly are, it is then and only then that we understand the meaning of the cross. It's wonder, it's necessity, it's beauty, it's astonishment, and it's power. And then we can glory in it. So let's just spend a few moments, and by a few moments I mean just a few moments, reviewing what we know of the God who has revealed himself and what we know about ourselves in light of the power and glory of the cross. First, we know that the God that we are talking about this morning is sovereign. He is the king, the creator, the God of the entire universe. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, meaning that everything that we see and know, including ourselves, belongs to God. He is sovereign king. He is the ruler. 
We belong to him, and he exercises absolute authority over us. That's the God we're speaking of this morning. And yet, we denounce his sovereignty, and we rebel. Humanity says, no. I will do whatever I want to do. We have denounced his sovereignty. No one will rule over us. No one will tell us anything. We will be our own God. And this attitude is evident in every one of our hearts this morning. Just check out last week in your life. And how many times we, as talking about believers this morning, how many times we decided to do what we wanted to do, never regarding what God wanted us to do? How many times we said yes to our flesh and no to the sovereign king of the universe? God is sovereign, and yet we have denounced his sovereignty and we have rebelled. There is rebellion in every one of our hearts. And some of you right now said, no, there's not, not in my heart. Well, that's rebellion. Do you understand that? It's there. It's alive and well. We have denounced his sovereignty. God not only is sovereign, God is righteous. Genesis 18.25, Abraham says, Will not the God of the whole earth do right? This is the God we're speaking of this morning. He is righteous. He has never had a wrong thought, deed, word, or motive. And yet, we have despised the riches of his kindness toward us. Romans 3.10 reminds us that there is none that doeth good. No, not one. We have turned our own way. We have become altogether unprofitable. There is none righteous, not one of us. We have despised his righteousness. And you and I are the complete opposite of the God we're speaking of this morning. We have wrong thoughts, deeds, words, and motives. God is not only sovereign and righteous, this God is also just. He is just. It means he is holy and right. And because he is holy and right and righteous, it means that he hates sin. Therefore, his wrathful response to sin is not, well, it could happen. It's a possibility. Because he is just, it is inevitable. It will happen. We need to understand something this morning. When the Bible talks about God's wrath, it mentions it 580 times, using 20 different words to describe it. God is wrathful against sin. And and I think part of our problem is that the world mocks this idea that God is a God of wrath, and Christians minimize this idea. We have forgotten the God that we serve. And it might be wise for us this morning to remember the horror of sin. Sin is any rebellion against God as the creator, doing what we want to do, living outside of his law and his way. And let me remind you, it was one sin. This world today is not the way it was created. There's a song that I want our church to learn and sing. Um, And the song is, is he worthy? By Andrew Peterson. And he says, do you feel or sense the world is broken? And the choir behind says, we do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Are we looking for relief from this world? Because it's chaotic now. Look around. 
It was made in perfection, but one sin threw this creation into chaos, confusion, war, holocaust, death, cancer, suffering, pain, tears. We know it to be true. And because God is just, He will punish all sin. Does it not make sense that a good God will destroy the thing that He knows destroys us? Sin, when it is finished, as pleasurable as it may be, as much as it may promise you, when it's done, leaves death. It destroys. It tears apart. It's horrific. And yet we have mocked his wrath. God is also loving toward his creation. First John, it tells us that God is love. And yet we have despised his kindness. The truth is, we don't love him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the truth is, Again, look back at this week. How much have we loved him? We don't. We turn constantly from him. And not only that, not only do we not love God and despise his riches, we don't love his image bearers. I've been on this planet for just a short time now. 49 and 9 tenths of my life now. That's how long I've been on this planet. 49 and 9 tenths. I am not 50 yet. I will be in a couple weeks. Okay? I'm telling you something. There is hatred in our world today. I mean hatred among believers and social media. I, I, I mean, there is sheer hatred for image bearers of God, no matter what they've done, where they've been, where they come from, the color of their skin, there is hatred. We have despised his love. This is the God we're speaking of this morning. And you need to know one other thing about this God that we're talking about before we ever get to Gethsemane. Is that this God must judge sin. There's an interesting verse in Proverbs 17 this morning. I'm just going to look at that quickly. It should be on our screen right now, Proverbs 17. It says, he that justifieth the wicked and he that condemns the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. It says here that God hates anyone who justifies the wicked. And you need to really keep this in mind this morning. Because how many times have you heard this statement? How in the world could God punish anyone and send them to hell? That's the big cry from everyone. But this verse gives us a real dilemma because it says that God's character, his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, he hates anyone who justifies the wicked. And yet, by allowing people into heaven, God has done just that. The real question should be, how can a righteous God be loving to rebellious sinners who deserve his wrath? And how can God, who is just and righteous, let rebels into heaven. Listen to this statement, and this might shock you. God's forgiveness is a threat to his character. 
with this idea, oh, God just forgives everybody, and forgiveness is not a big deal. But the truth is, because God is holy, righteous, and just, the idea of forgiveness and justifying the wicked is a dilemma. John Stott said this, forgiveness is for God the profoundest of problems. And that's our situation this morning. It's not just, oh, let God forgive, and he forgives. Forgiveness is a problem because God is just and holy, and he will not allow the wicked to go unpunished. Now listen to me. We despise his sovereignty. We denounce his rule. We despise his love. We despise his justice. We despise his righteousness. And yet we expect him just to close his eyes and welcome people into heaven. Before the cross is for anyone's sake this morning, the cross is for God's sake. Do you understand this morning that the only way that you and I can be justified is because of what happened at Calvary? We read earlier this morning, Romans 3, 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. The truth of the matter is this. We glory in the cross this morning because we understand who God is. We understand who we are. And this dilemma of forgiveness was satisfied by the cross of Jesus Christ. It is through the death of Christ that God can still be just, holy, and righteous. At the same time, he can forgive sinful men and women all because of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here this morning. Because of Christ, we have a substitution. He died for me, his life for mine. Because of Christ, we have a propitiation, a word that's been mentioned several times in our scripture this morning. That wrath has been satisfied. And because of Christ, we have reconciliation. We can once again be brought back into the proper relationship with God. So, with that in mind now this morning, with the importance of the cross of Christ, let's look at our text at Matthew 26 and 27 and just make three comments about it. In this text, we see, first and foremost, substitution. In Matthew 26, verse 17, Christ is celebrating the Passover. It is the greatest historical event in the life of the Jewish nation. And at this time, Jesus is celebrating this event, which has been celebrated for 1,400 years. As the disciples come together, they meet in this upper room, and they're doing what every Jewish family was to do for 1,400 years, celebrating the Exodus. Remember the Exodus? Israel as a nation was in bondage, in slavery. They were to take a spotless lamb to shed its blood, to put the blood at the head of the post, on the two sides of the post. The family then would enjoy a meal together, and in that evening they would be delivered from death, and from bondage, they would be free. And in Matthew 26, for this unbelievable event, Jesus says something that is just crazy. He says, listen, this thing we've been doing for 1,400 years, I'm going to change it tonight. And tonight, the meaning of this event will all be centered on me. I will become the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And tonight, I will shed my blood so that you can have freedom and deliverance. You will be delivered from death 
you will be delivered from bondage. Christian, listen to me. We must glory in this because this substitution is not only from eternal death, but Christ's death as a substitution provides a way for freedom from bondage. I don't have to be what I used to be anymore because Christ substituted in my place. The good news is that before the cross, we were headed to eternal death. But because of the cross, we are now headed for eternal life. It's substitution. is what we see in Matthew 26. There's a second thing we see. It is propitiation. A big word simply means that something or someone has turned away wrath by taking away sin. The Garden of Gethsemane is really shocking, to be honest with you. Here is Christ, who up to this time, we see his authority, we see his power, we see his fearlessness to everyone around him. And yet, in Gethsemane, we see sheer agony. We see this crushing weight, it's consuming, unlike anything we had seen up to this point. And remember... This is several hours before the cross. And in Gethsemane, Christ is coming before the Father, praying about this cup. Oh God, if you can, take this cup away. But nevertheless, your will be done. So what is the problem with this cup? It is not just physical, it is spiritual. When we look at the Old Testament, the cup is always a metaphor for God pouring out his wrath. In Psalm, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then again confirmed in Revelation, it is God pouring his wrath out against all sin. And here in Gethsemane, the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God, in perfect harmony with the Father, doing all the things that pleased him. Now, this perfect one, who had perfect fellowship, would now drink the cup of God's wrath. The wrath poured out against all sin. The sinless one would not only drink the cup, he would drink it dry. He would bear the wrath of God against our iniquity. At the cross, God expresses his full judgment with sin. Christian, Quit toying with sin. Whenever you think, this is pleasurable, this is enjoyable, I deserve this, I need this, you need to stop and go to the cross and see God pouring his wrath against your sin and my sin at Calvary. At the cross, God expresses his full judgment of sin. At the cross, God endures the full judgment of sin. Do you understand that the God who we need to be saved from is the God who saves us? He endured the full judgment through the Son. And then at the cross, God enables free salvation for sinners. Here's the good news. Before the cross, we were afraid of God. Because of the cross, we are now friends with God. He bore the wrath that we might experience the love of the Father. This is propitiation. And finally this morning, we see reconciliation. In Matthew 27, Jesus says, My God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? This is not a cry of unbelief. This is not a cry of confusion. This is not a cry of despair. In Mark 9, he already said, he prophesied, this is going to happen. This is what I expect. This is what's coming to fruition. He knew this. This cry was a cry of physical agony. It was a cry of spiritual anguish. And it was a cry of relational alienation. In that moment, Christ became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And Christ was cut off from the Father's favorable presence and given the full recompense of our disobedience. This is our Savior. He became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He experienced being forsaken that we might be forgiven and reconciled back to God, never to be forsaken again. This morning, listen to me, believer, there is no circumstance, there is no event, there is nothing that we do that God would say, I'm going to forsake you because Christ was forsaken for us in order that we would never be forsaken again. Here's the good news. Before the cross, we were cast out of God's presence. Because of the cross, we are now invited into his presence. That's what we do here this morning. We enjoy an intimate time of fellowship with him. On the cross, we find substitution, we find reconciliation, and we find propitiation. It's for us this morning. So how do we respond to this? And there are only two responses as we close this morning. In light of what we've just seen and what we've heard from Scripture, number one, we surrender our hearts to God. The proper response for what we talked about this morning is we surrender our hearts to God. This morning, if you are lost, if you do not know Christ, if this is new to you, you are to turn and trust. Listen to me. Christ died for you. And there's nothing you can add to it. There's not a religion. There's not works. There's not benevolent acts. Nothing you can do. You must turn and say, God, you are right. The cross means something. He died for you in your place. He bore your wrath, poured out on his head. What arrogance to believe that sinful men and women could do anything to merit God's favor. And yet we do. We must turn and trust him. This morning, understand, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is Christ and Christ alone. And this morning, if you're hearing the gospel for the first time or for the 500th time, today is a day of salvation. You can do it now in your seat. You can turn from your own ways to him and trust. So surrender to your heart to God. That's number one, if you're lost. If you're saved, we are to surrender our hearts to God as well. And here's what we do. We turn and trust. Believer, 
This is for us this morning to stop, to meditate, to think, to come in holy reverence and fear and to say, Christ, you did this for me. Help me to turn back to you. We have become anemic and worldly and so filled with other stuff that we've just drifted away from the God who loved us and gave everything to us. This is a time to say, stop it and turn. Lord, I understand the sacrifice, and now I am coming home. I'm trusting you and your substitution. Believer, surrender your heart to God. Stop toying with sin. Stop it. It will not end well for you. It never does. I've been at this for a long time now. 18, 10, 28 years. Sin always leaves you the same way. When it's done with you, it's done. It never promises what it fulfills. Christian, stop toying with it. It was that sin that Christ died on the cross for. And the horrors of Calvary are because of you and because of me. Surrender our hearts to God. Number two, we should proclaim the hope of this good news. One of the things we do this morning is we show the Lord's death till he come. And this is a visible way to proclaim the gospel. We take the bread, which is the body of Christ, recognizing that his body was bruised and beaten and spit upon, He gave it for us. He was the sacrifice. His blood was shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And what we're saying is, this is the gospel. This is the good news. We are proclaiming it as we partake to say, this is the only way. And we glory in it. This meal does that. But let me say this. This proclamation, this hope of the good news, should not just be at this meal. It should be on Monday. We can come and we can glory in this and we can be moved by this and we can rejoice in this and we can leave the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday, and never say anything about this? Does that seem strange to you? It should. It should come understanding we have the opportunity to proclaim the hope of the glorious news. And so this morning... As we get ready to partake of this meal, to be invited to this table, may we think of Matthew 26 and 27, the scene of Gethsemane, and understand that this morning Jesus Christ was our substitute, his life for mine, the innocent, the guilty. He was a substitute, he was a propitiation. The wrath of God was poured on on him so that I don't ever have to experience it. And he is a reconciliation. Because of Christ, I come to this table um, not in fear, not in trembling, but in rejoicing that the presence to God is opened through Christ. This is the communion table. We look forward to receiving it this morning. Ask the men to come. And join me as we get ready to prepare the table.